Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now we're just seeing a broken time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com TFS. As in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com TFS. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, poodles and parakeets, or maybe you prefer polar bear, if you're a tough guy. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. Please excuse my irreverence. I've had way too much coffee, and uh, that is my dog attempting to do breakdancing. Sorry for the background noise. This episode, like all episodes of The Tim Ferriss Show, includes a dose of deconstructing someone who is a world-class performer and exceptionally good at what they do. In this case, we have a science writer, but... The other half of this show, quite frankly, is purely selfish. It is me exploring subjects that I want to know more about. And in this case, the guest is not a military strategist, not an entertainer. It is Eric Vance. Eric with a K. You can say hi to him on Twitter, at Eric Vance. He is an award-winning science writer based in California and Mexico City. After working as a scientist on research projects dealing with dolphin intelligence and coastal ecology, he became an educator and then later an environmental consultant. In 2005, he switched gears and attended UC Santa Cruz's famed science communication program. 
great program. I almost went to UC Santa Cruz for uh, fiction, in fact, and discovered a passion for journalism. Since then, he has built his career around science-based profiles of inspiring or controversial figures. And we, we dig into not only the science, but also his approach to writing and conveying that. His work has appeared in Harper's Magazine, The New York Times, Scientific American, National Geographic. He's also a contributing editor at Discover Magazine. And his latest book is Suggestible You, The Curious Science of Your Brain's Ability to Deceive, Transform, and Heal. In this episode, we cover many topics with equal amounts of the profound, actionable, and hilarious. We talk about the power of placebo and how you can increase the odds of it working for you, if you so choose, which conditions respond well to placebo, for instance, depression, uh, Parkinson's, and which do not, how the mind, religion, bedside manner, and peer pressure can dramatically influence medical outcomes. And then we get to some stories, and not necessarily in that order. Catching porcupines in South Africa, this story alone is worth the time it takes to listen to this episode. It'll make you laugh out loud. It's awesome. Finding and studying a pig shit sommelier. Yes, you heard me correctly. Why he got electrocuted for half an hour at the NIH laboratories in Bethesda, Maryland. The story of why he chose to be cursed by a witch doctor in Mexico City and much, much more. So please enjoy a conversation that I very much enjoyed with Eric Vance. And as always, you can find all links to everything mentioned in this episode in the show notes for this episode and every other episode at fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tim. I appreciate it. Of course. And where does this find you at the moment? Uh, I am currently in my office in Mexico City, uh, in the Roma, if anyone's ever been to Mexico City, where, uh, where I'm based. In the DF. And how did, DF, exactly. <laughs> how did you end up in Mexico City? Um, actually, my, I told my wife uh, years ago that uh, you know, I'm a freelance journalist, that I, I can live anywhere in the world, and, um, and, uh, and you know, I wanted to travel with her. And she works in development, and... Uh, and she came back and told me Mexico City is where she got a job. And I, I said, I, I kind of meant like Paris or Venice, you know, anywhere in the world, you know, like London. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we came down here and I fell in love with it. And so I love it. It's an amazing city. Great food. From what um, I hear, I've never been, but uh, incredible food. And you've traveled, uh, you've traveled a lot. You've spent time all over the planet. And... What I'd like to start with, perhaps, is why biology? How did you oh. get interested in biology? And, and we'll, we'll talk about some of the adventures that then relate to that. But how the initial interest? Uh, you know, when I was a kid, I was never all that good in school. Uh, I, I didn't. I had some, some attention issues. And uh, I, you know, some when I was Attention issues? Attention. Sorry. Oh, attention. Got it. I didn't pay attention real well. Uh, and, uh, but like when I was out of school, like I spent a lot of time like walking through the woods, basically looking for dead things and then sort of poking them and <laughs> opening them up and stuff. And, uh, I didn't realize this was a field like this. It wasn't until like, <laughs> later, even when I had gone through biology classes, I didn't really realize that that's what we were talking about until I really got to, uh, just before college when I realized that, you know, poking dead things and finding them is, is actually something people do for a living. And I was hooked at that point. And uh, what did the trajectory look like? I mean, did you go immediately as soon as you got into undergrad into the sciences? 
Uh, I did. I got I got really hooked as an undergrad in in sort of field biology. There's there's two kinds of biology. There's uh, there's uh, microscope biology and binoculars biology. And I got into binoculars biology, uh, <laughs> you know, chasing after animals and stuff like that, and looking at trees. And uh, I loved it. And I and I really wanted to be a, a scientist. I wanted to be uh, you know be a PhD and 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 you know publish papers. I just wasn't that good at it. Um, I you know, I loved wandering and, and learning new things, but doing the actual work was not my forte. And so uh, I went through a bit of a crisis and backed away from biology and discovered journalism and specifically science journalism. And that's where I really found my growth. How old were you when that happened? When you f- took that fork in the road? I was 27, I think. It would, I'd spent a solid five years after college uh, being a sort of a biologist for hire and working in some laboratories around the world and and doing some different things, but never really, you know, locking in. I kept jumping from one thing to the next. And I was about 27 when I finally discovered science writing and uh, went back to grad school for, uh, for, for journalism. How did you make that decision in the sense that, and I also realized I accidentally used a Yogi Berra quote where I said, when you, when you took that fork in the road, that's not, <laughs> you reach a fork in the road, take it. That's not proper English, folks. I need more caffeine. But uh, what was the moment in which you decided that you were going to to bite the bullet, so to speak, and and pursue that? I mean, was it a particular conversation, a particular dinner? You know, I always had I always had this uh, this sort of scientific uh, like sense of uh, like superiority to, to to writers, and I always thought writers were kind of a, a bore. And, and yet, I had written a, a novel that will never be published and never should be published uh, as as a scientist. And I just loved writing, but I just didn't like like there's something about uh, you know that that process that I just couldn't admit that I, I actually liked, you know, it was like this, I know I'm a scientist, I'm analytical and, and yet I'm doing all this stuff on, on the side. And finally it was really a matter of, um, a single Google search after doing some soul searching where I typed in science and writing into a Google search and lo and behold, I found out there's a whole, you know, a whole career for science writers, which I had never really thought of. And, uh, when I was a kid, I used to get these little things called zoo books, um, there are these little you know, magazines that you get. It's like your first mail that you ever got when you were a kid. And uh, I always let you have like, the animals. And you learn about the animals. And I always wanted to be the guy who was like in the magazine, like you know, pulling apart you know, sharks or you know, picking up ants and new stuff. And what I realized in that moment was I don't want to be the guy in the magazine. I want to be the guy making the magazine. Like It was the magazine that I really loved. It wasn't you know, every, every month it was something new. And, and that's what I liked. And that like clicked and then I was off. Now you, although you went on the, the other side of the camera, so to speak, to, to document and interview and research, you've also spent a fair amount of time in the field, right? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so, and I don't know the answer to this question, but which came first, the, the pig shit or the porcupines? <laughs> oh, the, the the porcupines came before the pig shit. Okay, yeah. so uh, <laughs> can you exp- can you explain the porcupines, please? Well, all right. So, in my process of becoming a uh, of trying to be a scientist, one of the places I went was in South Africa, um, and I basically I, I needed I needed a um, a subject for my PhD, and so I just figured I'd go to South Africa and like catch sharks and do cool stuff and figure out what I was all about. Um, and why, why I, South Africa? 
I had seen the movie The Power of One, and <laughs> I really liked it. I thought it was good. And so I said, that's where I'm going. Yes. <laughs> and that was literally as much thought as I put into it. Like, I was I was an idiot as a kid. And so, uh, and I actually tried to reenact. I'd go, like, through these slums of South Africa, I'd go jogging and stuff, thinking that children would, like, chase me. And I just had people be like, dude, you shouldn't be here. Be like, <laughs> <laughs> go away before you get hurt. <laughs> um, so, but I did, so I'm wandering around and, and I ended up hooking up with this laboratory at, in Cape Town, University of Cape Town. And uh, sometimes they farmed out uh, their scientists to, um, to, uh, to like uh, documentaries. And uh, so I was still a scientist at that point, but there was a documentary. The BBC was doing a, a, a program on, um, uh, aardvarks and the animals that live in their burrows. So it was really exciting stuff. It's like a thriller. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, they had, you know, they had, uh, aardwolves and, 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 uh, a bunch of other animals that live in these burrows. And one of them was porcupines. So what they needed is they needed a biologist to go in and catch the porcupines and habituate them. And that was the deal. And they said, Hey, you know, they, and you know, they got this, this lame kid sort of wandering around their lab who they, they were like, Hey, let's just send him. Cause you know, he's not, really doing anything um and so they sent me into the bush for 10 days with uh with uh some really interesting characters i mean the people who end up you know signing up for this are are you know a, a diverse group and it was uh one the guy who was leading the expedition was sort of this uh guy who'd spent a lot of time in, in the bush and was was really savvy but really quiet didn't say anything and he'd sort of occasionally catch birds with his bare hands and <laughs> <laughs> it was just like that was about all. It's like he, a praying mantis, although a very was, large one. Yeah. yeah, he was. He'd like walk in front of the car, and there'd be this bird, you know, like sort of, you know, crouch, and he'd just like snap out and grab it. Um, and then, uh, and then there was this other dude who uh, was come, who was in the in the field to detox from his heroin addiction, and uh, he was a he was a former Satan worshiper who'd become a born again Christian, and. Uh, I learned that it's not actually that different. Actually, you think he's like he didn't actually change much. He just sort of switched sides. You know, he was just uh, before he'd say, you know, I, I can feel the claws of Satan like ripping into my chest and parting the skin of my chest, and and now it's a bad thing. <laughs> before it was like a good thing. Before it was, it was like, like a massage. Right? That was like Saturday night. You know, like it was, <laughs> it was his normal thing, and, and he was. And he was really intense and, you know, he was still totally focused on Satan as a born again Christian, which I had never thought about before, but it is a big thing. And, um, and he was just this really interesting guy. It was sort of me and him and this guy who never spoke. And, uh, and so we sort of spent our days smoking cigarettes and, um, uh, the, the, the recovering addict was, would like try to catch fish with a, a stick and a, a hook that he had found. And, uh, and then at night we'd go out with these, this giant truck and this, uh, and this, uh, this light, this, this sort of like, like rifle looking, uh, like flashlights and look for, um, look for, uh, porcupines. And, uh, and I learned a few things about porcupines. Uh, we were not prepared. It was day three before someone suggested we get some blood. <laughs> <laughs> which, which had like blankets. Somebody on. forgot the packing list. <laughs> like it didn't even occur to us. That's how bad it was. Like it didn't. It didn't. It wasn't that we like forgot them. We just never occurred that we might want gloves <laughs> catching porcupines. Thank God they called the professionals. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is this is who uh, this is who they sent. <laughs> and um, and so I mean, uh, 
so uh, a, a quick thing about uh, porcupines. We actually learned that there were sort of like two primary defense strategies that porcupines have, not surprising to anyone. Uh, one of them, the surprising one, I suppose, was that they're actually really fast especially when you've been smoking cigarettes all day. Uh, it, like, actually, when they start to run, you're just like, oh, shit, this one's running. And, uh, and you know, they know where their burrow is. You don't. And so you're just, you know, you're, you're, we spend a lot of time just sort of like tripping over, you know, over rocks and stuff. And then, and then, and then like with our hands on our knees, sort of like just catching our breath and having been dusted by some fat little porcupine. Um, <laughs> So, so that was the first technique. The second one was more usable, which was when they uh, they just stick their head against a tree, put up their uh, their quills, and go like you know yeah, give it your best shot, asshole. Like you know, you know, go ahead. You know, like you know, and those are the ones we wanted because we had a little a little syringe of ketamine, which uh, was endlessly fascinating to the recovering addict. Um, that <laughs> sure. shoot, endlessly up. fascinating to a lot of people in Silicon Valley too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it was, it's actually very useful for tranquilizing these animals. So, uh, but what's interesting, what I didn't realize is actually every time when you watch, you know, a, a, a nature film about you know animals like a porcupine, like they didn't just stumble upon that animal and like now they're filming. That's not the way it works. Like someone went out beforehand and prepped the whole scene, and uh, and one of the ways they they had to prep it is you you catch the animal, you, you drug it, and then you um, you have to put a um, Put a tracking device inside of it, uh, because the the you know people on watching TV don't want to see a, a radio collar. <laughs> they don't want to see a Petco <laughs> Har- Harvey collar around the wild porcupine, right? Yeah, I mean, it kind of kills the mood. Which is, I mean, it's not great. It's not a great. Uh, it's not great for the porcupine because he has to go through invasive surgery. Uh, but um, so we did that uh, with this one porcupine that they they named Uncle Eric, and I I never really was clear whether that was a. Uh, they were making fun of me or it was an honor of me. Uh, it really could have gone either ways. Uh, uh, but, uh, uh, so we, you know, we did that and then, um, and then we released uncle Eric, you know, sort of back into the wild to, to lick his wounds. And, uh, and then what the next step is, is to habituate them. And so basically habituation is like one step down from taming. You basically hang out with a porcupine uh, or whatever animal for hours and hours and hours until they realize that you're not going to hurt them and they understand that you're not going to feed them. So they just ignore you. Like you're just another tree or whatever in the, you know, in their environment and they just go about their business. And that's when you bring in the film crew. So it's not at all like a, like a natural setting. Um, but you might wonder like, how do you, how do you do that? You know, and basically you just have to talk to him for, hours and hours on end you just have to you'd have to get used to the human voice because when people come in to film they'll be talking and stuff so uh so i sat out in the middle of the you know, the classic like empty savanna with you know the huge sky and uh you know scorpions crawling over my feet and uh um and just talked to this this porcupine and you know like, what do you talk eric. to pork <laughs> uncle eric uncle eric and me hanging out together and it was like it was like me and this porcupine. And what are you talking about? Well, you talked to him about your relationship problems. And I was sitting there, you know, being like, you know. And then she told me that she didn't want me to come because her friend was coming, but I don't even know her friend. And 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 then a couple of years ago, okay, let me go back a couple of years. You know, the porcupine sitting there, you know, listening to me, like 
bitch endlessly about this. And what is the point of Brian doing? Not sitting on a rock smoking a cigarette, listening, I'm guessing. No, no, he's sitting with his head against a tree as he was (laughs) doing in the first place. But his spine's up, just going, please, please, God. She's like, dude, dude, attack me or leave. I can't do this for forever. You gonna, are you going to kill me or what? Like, what is this? And uh, and I remember one night I heard the storm coming. So I sort of go up on the little ridge and and look out. And I say, okay, I got, I got an hour or so before it comes. And I come back and I, and then Uncle Eric's gone. I'm like, okay. I'm like, dang, dang it. Uh, so I grab my, my tracking device and flip it on. And he's not popping up on the scanner at all. And this thing has like a 100-yard radius. So he basically cleared 100 yards in like less than a minute <laughs> just to get away from me. Like as soon as I turned my back on him, he was like, you know, gone, I'm gone. <laughs> and he just <laughs> bolted for the horizon. And, uh, and I remember just like, and that was one of the moments where I, I, I really was wondering if I was in the right career or not. <laughs> <laughs> so that, so that was on the field biology side. I like the, the binoculars versus microscopes. Actually the last interviewee or the last few folks I had on the interview were on the opposite end of the spectrum. So they mm-hmm. were actually focused on things like uh, the mechanistic target of rapamycin and looking at mTOR uh-huh. and all this cool stuff. Uh, the So the field biology, if we then flash forward, right, you are learning more about science writing. What was the program that you were in? It was the actually the Santa Cruz, University of California, Santa Cruz science writing program, which really changed my life. It's an amazing program. Who or what lessons had the biggest impact on you through that course? Um, there's, that program, I should say. God, there's so many. I mean, the biggest thing is as a scientist, you're trying to be exact. You, you need to be precise. And as a as, as a storyteller, you, you need to convey a, a feeling and a, a sense because people don't walk away. People don't read uh, journalism or, or, you know, storytelling the same way that they read a scientific paper. And, you know, you walk away with kind of an idea, a couple little facts and an idea. And you really have to shift your, your thinking uh, to tell, you know, a story to someone. You have to have characters. You have to have an arc. And that's really hard. And that that's something I think I learned there, but I, I'm constantly trying to uh, to perfect because it's it's a totally different way. I mean, aside from all the little things like no longer using the passive tense and uh, you know and and the technical jargon and all that kind of stuff, you know, it's really about you know telling a story and it's not about conveying information. Or it's about wrapping the information in this sugar-coated delight right. call the story right. so that you actually absorb it yeah uh, what uh, who are so, well i guess i have a, i have so many questions just because i've i just finished a book myself so writing is on the brain how mm-hmm. what about your writing besides say using the passive tense less improved the most before and after going into the program, coming out of the program. So, And the reason I ask is I can think of, for instance, in my own history, going back to a class that I took with John McPhee, which was called The Literature Mm -hmm. of Fact. And what he really burned into my brain, and of course, I won't even approach 10% of the writer he is (laughs) ever, but uh, was, was how visually he thinks of structure. And mm. it would almost spec it out on a 
on a blackboard or a whiteboard like a football play. It was really fascinating mm -hmm. or even like a Krebs cycle or something. It was very, very visual. And I'd never thought of architecting something out that way. So that was a novel idea that I still rely on sometimes when I am stuck, right? When I can't figure out how to structure a story, that's something that I'll still do. Is uh, Are there any tools or any particular changes that you experienced uh, in your own writing? Um, yeah, that's a really good one, huh? Uh, have you ever heard of the Open Notebook? No, I haven't. I should check it out. It's a it's a it's a uh, website um, run by some really good science writers uh, that that's for science writers, and they have a, a, a session that's or a section that's just that. It's basically uh, science writers doing schematics of stories oh, they've done. How cool! And their favorite stories. Oh, that's uh, awesome. It's great. I, I did uh, um, uh, I did one where I, I actually like tried to sketch out Burkhart Bilger's uh, a New Yorker story he did on uh, on uh, youth cowboy uh, youth uh, rodeo um, programs. It's an amazing story, and I just loved it. And so I tried to sketch it out, and then I sketched out one of my own. And you'd love it. It's very visual. It's very cool. And oh, so you so it's people taking a stab at other authors or other writers' work in addition to their own. And it isn't their own. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's both cool. your experience as a reader and your experience as a writer. And uh, um, uh, of course, I liked his story better than the one I did. Um, so it looks a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's very, it's very, you'd like it. It's, it. There's a bunch of other gems in there too. Um, but the thing that I think I really took away and I wasn't expecting from that program was a love of characters, uh, of, of the people, you know, like I tell the story about, you know, the, the, Porcupines. It's just a weird thing, you know, but it's like you tell a biologist a story and they're like, yeah, okay, whatever. Like, of course, that's our job. You know, they're weird people doing a weird job. And that's what I really fell in love with was the people who do it and, and, and how they approach it. And so I love, for the first couple of years of my career, I just wrote profiles about amazing scientists who I thought were doing cool stuff. And, uh, and uh, that's really that's really what I I focused on was sort of like who are these people who are interesting but also can tell a broader story like you know I, I have something I want to say about you know uh, you know gene therapy or or uh, you know or uh, 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 um, chemicals in the atmosphere that uh, that uh, sort of uh, via volatile organic compounds and that that changed the atmosphere over forest I want to tell that story but I, I really want to tell it through a person. You know, like, who is that person who can tell that story? And what's their life like? And what do they think about? And why are they sitting on top of a tree, like, trying to get, you know, these air samples? Like, how did they end up there? And that's what I really fell in love with, that program, was, was the people. Like, how do you bring a person? How do you tell a story through a person? Who is that person? And it's not always the easiest person to find. Sometimes they're the ones you're not looking for. <laughs> so that's, that's uh, the best tee-up I could imagine for my next question, which is, uh, this, I, I should point out, I mean, the, these are all new things to me. I don't know the answers to these questions. The first reporting assignment, you sent me a little note, was with a guy who studies the smell of pig shit for a living. So probably not sort of the, the Mickey Mantle you were looking for for 10 years. <laughs> uh, how did that come to be? And, and walk me through, like, you graduate from your program. How do you go from there to this assignment? <laughs> well, I, um, you know, you're a young freelance writer. No one 
no one cares what you think or what you want to write about. Of course, you know, I want to write about like sharks and, you know, important stuff. They're and, like, yeah, get in line, pal. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, go ahead. We'll, we'll, we'll look at your pitch. Yeah, definitely. You know, and so, <laughs> so you have to come up with, you know, stuff they don't have, you know, and, and one of those things is chemistry, you know, like not a lot of people covering chemistry. So I was like, all right, I'll do some chemistry. And, uh, so it actually started, I was working at the Chronicle of Higher Education. Um, and, uh, I got this, where, little, was, this where little, was that? The Chronicle of Higher Education in Washington, D.C. It's, it, it's, a, it's a magazine that, like, in, unless you're, in, it's, like, highly respected among universities and no one else has heard of it. But it's actually a really great, great outlet. They do great science writing. So uh, it was sort of my my opportunity to really dig in and do cool stories. But one of the stories that did that wasn't that cool was this sort of a side 300-word blurb about uh, the chemical involved in, um, have you ever heard of ladybug taint? I mean, that pulls up an incredible image in my head. I'm pretty sure it's not accurate. So no, I'm going to say no. <laughs> I had the greatest title for this story that they wouldn't let me use. But uh, wait, wait, well, okay. So now I have to ask, what is what was the what was the headline? Uh, stinky ladybug taint. <laughs> that could be your uh, punk rock band at this point, <laughs> right? Uh, so okay, so no, I don't know what ladybug like ladybug taint is. What is so that? if you, if you're crushing a bunch, you're you're from the Bay Area, right? I am. Well, I live in the Bay Area. Yeah, you live in the Bay Area. Well, if you're crushing up a bunch of grapes in like a you know a classic sort of wine crush, um, it's inevitable that you're gonna get one or two ladybugs in there. It, it it just happens. And what happens is if you get like one ladybug in in a you know in a big vat, you kind of get this nice little um bell pepper taste. It's like this 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 it's this nice sort of hint in the background. Um, if you get two or three it gets overpowering and it just ruins the whole batch. And it's called that ladybugs. It must be hard as hell to deal with. I mean, right? ladybugs, uh, <laughs> I don't know how many people listening have been inside a wine vat, but those things are gigantic. <laughs> I mean, wow. Okay. Well, so, so you can't, and, and you can't like drop a ladybug in because you don't know if there's already one in there. So, I mean, I, apparently it's a big thing. Anyway, what's interesting is uh, I was talking to scientists who like discovered the chemical that, that does this. It's an extremely potent, powerful chemical i think i calculated if, if you took an olympic size swimming pool and you put a teaspoon in there you'd still be able to taste it like this stuff wow. is brutal so like, sharks and, are to blood what humans are to ladybug taint in a swimming pool <laughs> <laughs> something like something if a like shark that. smelled this he'd, he'd be the same way he'd be like damn like no yeah. no 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 <laughs> like, like anyway it's it's potent and so it got, I started talking to this guy the way, you know, the way I do. And I was, you know, I was like, wow, this is a weird job. Like, how did you find these? Like, oh, yeah, there's some ladybugs in my windowsill. And I shook them up in a jar and it smelled this thing. And if, if you ever eat a ladybug, uh, which I'm, I don't, Tim, have you eaten any ladybugs? Uh, no, I've eaten a lot of crickets, but no ladybugs. I need <laughs> to reason, expand my repertoire, maybe. <laughs> there's a reason why you don't, because, and that's the reason why they're red and black. It's a warning sign because they have this chemical and they will unleash it if, if you try to eat them. And that's what it's for. So he, you know, he, he smelled this thing. He was like, oh my God, I got to figure out what this is. So I asked him, of course, you know, well, what's your job that, that you do this? And he's like, well, I mean, I don't actually study ladybugs. I actually study pig shit. He didn't say it like that, but that's what went through my head. And, uh, and I was like, wait, like, and he, he, he specifically focuses on smells and, and, and these like strong, uh, smells and, and the, the chemicals that are involved in, and what we smell. And so, uh, I was like, Oh my God, wait, so you study, you know, pig manure that, that you study the smell of pig manure. He's like, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the aerosol, you know, uh, chemical nature, you know, he had, he had a, a great way to sort of say, I study smelly pig shit. And, uh, I was like, Oh my God, I have to come out and meet you. You know, I have to like see your laboratory. This is amazing. And so I, um, 
So I, I pitched Nature, which is a very prestigious journal, who also does a lot of science journalism. And I was like, you, you have to please let me send, you know, I've done a little work for them before. And they're like, please, can you send me out to talk to this guy? And they were like, all right, you know, he's in Iowa. And he's like, all right, you know, you got a couple hundred dollars, like go out there, come back, you know, get the story. It's the first time I've ever had to, had to, had to like, you know, been on assignment to do uh, like a story like that. I was very excited. Um, and it was the most amazing lab I've ever seen. Now, now hold on. What did the, so this was, was this your first kind of pitch for a remote assignment? Yes. Okay. What, <laughs> what did the, did you do it via letter or email or was it via phone? The, when you, when, I, you, when you were like, Hey boss or Hey editor. I said, I mean, I put together a nice like email, you know, like with, with all the pieces the pitch was to have. And it was, you know, and it was like fascinating jobs. And I sort of cages around people who have interesting jobs and, um, and tried to keep the poop humor to a minimum, though I did get the word poop in the journal nature. And that's that I want. That's a win. That's a win. That's a win. Uh, (laughs) Okay. um, So you, (laughs) so you, uh, so you, you fly out to Iowa so I fly out to Iowa, and it was it, well, actually I flew out to Nebraska because I, I didn't, I didn't actually know the difference between the two. Uh, so I ended up renting a car and uh, driving to Iowa um, because I, you know, that's how nervous I was when I was booking my tickets. Um, so I, I fly and I get out of the car, and, uh, and and you can smell it as soon as you get out, so that you can actually smell it's a phenol, um, a, a specific. It's often called a, by people who are into this world. It's called Band Aid or Farmyard, and it's the first thing you smell when you know there's a barnyard nearby. It's a it has a high, uh, sorry, very low vapor pressure, so it sticks to anything it it touches, which means <laughs> a little bit of like dust in the air, and 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 it'll stick to it, and you'll it's the first thing you smell. It smells a little like a Band Aid, and it's like oh, there must be a farm nearby. That one. Mm-hmm. So that's what you know. I smell as soon as you get out. Uh, it's a very agricultural area. It was up in Ames. And I go in this guy's lab and he just introduces me to this world of smells like that. He's got like, everybody's got these smelly pens everywhere. And he has all the students like smelling the pens to try with their eyes closed, trying, you know, like really hone their ability to recognize smells that are hidden. And he's got this device called the, um, let's see if I can do this, uh, multi-dimensional, uh, gas chromatography, mass spec olfactometer. I mean, you got one, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I'm looking at one right now next to my tea. Uh, so, okay. This thing is amazing. So you put like, let's take, go back to wine, right? You pour some wine in this thing, right? Uh, and then what it does is it basically gas chromatography cuts the wine up into different pieces, into different chemical components, and it breaks them up, pushes them aside from each other, and starts giving them to you one at a time through a little cup that goes over your nose. At the same time, you have a mass spec giving you a layout of what these things are. So you're smelling it. The computer's analyzing it. And together, you can find stuff that no one's found before. Hmm. Because our noses are incredibly, incredibly sensitive. And so like he does this, but and he does this with wine. And that's like for practice and for some other things. But mostly he focuses on pig shit. Like that's his bread and butter. And he studies like these chemicals that make pig shit like really, really bad. And, uh, and he's looking for subtle, subtle differences, you know, the, the saison of, you know, of, of that, <laughs> that, that one big dropping that just, you know, that that's going to solve it. And he, he's trying to diminish that smell. Like, I was going to ask, is he, I assume he's not making perfume. I mean, what? <laughs> so, so now why is it important to diminish the smell of pig shit? Well, I mean, this, and to, to your point, like his guy has kind of knows he could be making perfumes. Like he's incredibly sensitive, but he's doing this because the idea is t- if you can change the food that a pig eats that to, in order to change what comes out from the other end, 
then you can diminish the smell of a, of a pig farm. And that's actually the biggest obstacle in, in building new pig farms. Ah, for, for zoning and neighbors and so on or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. And not, not just, you know, for a whole communities that don't want these things nearby. And if you can diminish that, well, maybe you can build more of them you can build them closer. You can build more, you can put more pigs in them. I mean, there's all kinds of opportunities that come up once you can sort of give the pig what it needs without having to get like the worst chemicals. And some of these chemicals, like with the ladybug, are really, really subtle. Like they're really small. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so he, uh, that's what he does. And he, uh, and he's got this device and he hooked me up to it. And he was worried that, uh, I wouldn't be able to get all the, all of the, the nuance. So rather than leaving the, the sample in the big shit in for, uh, um, a couple minutes, 10 minutes was what he'd do. He left it in overnight. So it really was powerful. <laughs> when he stuck this thing on my nose, I was, the first couple things you smell are actually the thing, interesting things because it's broken up into pieces. And there's, you know, there's some nice things in pig shit. There's, you know, there's uh, wet cardboard and taco shell and uh, mushroom, all these great, all these things you think are really obnoxious about like wine drinkers. Like those are real chemicals. And they actually, you can, you can smell them separately. I mean, this is great, you know? I'm just imagining can... saying to a date, like, you smell wonderful. It's, it's <laughs> like wet cardboard and mushrooms. <laughs> so earthy. Yeah. It's, wow. And, uh, yeah, and, and you don't know until you smell it. You're like, oh, my God, that totally is wet cardboard. Uh, and there's no – I mean, the pigs haven't been eating cardboard. It's just the same chemical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we get to the sulfates, and, man, that's the business end of pig shit. <laughs> you know, like, I felt like I was getting, like – run over by a manure truck and, you know, or had my like face down one of those, uh, those, uh, uh, you know, porta potties for like, it was just horrible. And as I mentioned, these things have a low vapor pressure, so they stick to wherever they touch horrible. the inside of your nose, meaning for the next three days, everything I ate, everything I smelled. (laughs) (laughs) I was just like, Oh, good. Had a hint of, of pig sphincter taint. Exactly. <laughs> uh, what? So you turn in that piece. What was was there any turn of phrase or portion of that piece that you were proudest of when you turned it in? Um. <laughs> yeah. I. Uh, uh, you know, that's the, the 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 great thing about this job is you know you if you read my stories you don't get a you only get a fraction of the experience that, that, you know, that, or any, any story, any science writer, or really any journalist, you know, you only get a fraction of, of the experience that they had when they were reporting that story. And this, it's so rich. And, and I, I wish there were more ways to share these things. But the, the, the part that I really enjoyed the most was, um, uh, this, this gentleman had, he was, like you said, he had a very, very sensitive nose. And he, uh, he was able to, uh, if you fart, he could, he could tell you what you, uh, what you ate. <laughs> That is a great party trick. It is. It was a great party trick. And his wife, I talked to his wife while, and she was a really wonderful woman. And she talked about, you know, she had been born in Iowa, met him in Alaska when he was a mountain climber, and then ended up moving back to Iowa with this very interesting career. And uh, and she just had a great sense of humor about the whole thing. And she's the one who told me that. Uh, and I also talked about how he used to smell when she first met him. He's a mountain climber, and he smelled great. And now it's like, you know, it's a different reality. We all got to grow up someday, I guess. <laughs> Uh, now you mentioned uh, you mentioned the former Satan worshiper turned evangelical <laughs> earlier. Uh, you are a scientist turned journalist, but you were yep. raised uh, 
Christian scientist? Is that right? Or, or was it more your uh, one of your parents or both? Tim, did you just uh, compare Satan worshiping to Christian <laughs> science? <laughs> no, but I think that that's probably what the internet's going to say. No, I was I was trying to do a clumsy transition with the theme of <laughs> religion, which didn't really work out, which is why I usually avoid talking about religion. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to bust your balls in that. I just thought that was funny. That's <laughs> okay. Busting my balls is fine. I, I did. I grew up in Christian science. Um, and, uh, and actually, I mean, I, I didn't really even realize it was all that weird you know, until you get older and you start thinking back on your childhood but i didn't go to a doctor till i was 18 years old uh it was like the first time and i remember being bewildered by the whole thing um and so uh so it was um but it was you know christian science is this really weird sort of interesting uh philosophy that's also it's also a religion but it, it's it's this thing that people don't often think about because they've really they're not as many as there used to be but it's a fascinating um religion that basically says it's kind of like the matrix, you know, it says that what you see, all this you see isn't real and that it's actually a construct of your mind. And if you change your mind, you can change your body. So it's a lot about belief and really deep belief that what you're seeing isn't true. This, whatever, this cold that you're experiencing or, um, it's arthritis that you're, you know, you're feeling it. It's not real. This is, this is a construct of your mind, which is kind of wacky when you think about it. And imagine growing up in that. It's a little weird. <laughs> well, well, I had a, uh, at least one of my grandparents, uh, and I don't think I've ever talked about this, was very much into Christian science. And at the time, I mean, I was whatever, let's call it five years old, six, seven, eight, nine. I was like, oh, something science. Sure. <laughs> Why not? Like, And uh, actually visited the Christian science reading room. I guess they have these reading rooms yep. in different cities at one point. But never really had a ton of direct exposure to it and did go to the doctor a lot because I was a very sick kid growing up. Did you get really sick at any point? Because I've seen at least one law and order about, you know, I think they must be maybe Christian scientists who have a kid with, say, a life-threatening illness or, or uh -huh. potentially a terminal <laughs> illness, and they won't let their kid go to the doctor, and then they're in court, and it's very dramatic. Yeah. Uh, did you just dodge all of the bullets? or? Did you have any any serious issues? Well, I should say, I mean, I did have a very healthy childhood. Um, I, I think most Christian scientists, if, if a kid breaks his arm, they're going to go to the doctor. I mean, it, everyone has their own interpretation. Basically, Christian science says there's, there's like a better way to do this. It's like kind of, it's not saying you can't. It, technically, it says, you know, there's a better way to heal something. But culturally, it does end up becoming you can't. Like that just ends up being sort of the way people... Um, interpret it. And, it, and, it, and it, that can be problematic. And, and if you don't go to doctors, it becomes really scary to go to a doctor. It becomes really frightening right. to built to up into that. some type of mental yeah. monster. Exactly. And you're told all these things about how, uh, doctors, I mean, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's not, they're not exactly wrong. I mean, you know, the, the, a lot of things can happen to you in a doctor's office. Um, people do walk out of hospitals sicker than they got. It happens. And they went in, you know, that, that happens. But for the most part, you know, we all know that uh, hospitals and doctors, um, they're trying to help you. But it, 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 it's like this. So it is this very difficult thing. And, and it actually came into play before I remember. Um, I had probably my most serious disease was, uh, I don't remember it because I was uh, about one and a half. And uh, uh, at the time, my parents thought it was Legionnaire's disease. Um, I've since talked to some pediatricians and some some scientists and tried to figure out what it was and, and it's not clear what it, what I had but it was definitely serious I was definitely uh, having seizures and um and turning colors and my eyes were rolling back in my head uh it was serious and um and my parents 
wanted to treat it in Christian science. And it, it was, it was touch and go. And I ended up having what Christian science would call a, a healing, uh, and rather instantaneous healing. When my parents, uh, my mom like got to this point where she, um, uh, she just got panicked, you know, I was really, really bad off. And, and she, uh, you know, she called up a practitioner who are these people who help Christian scientists, uh, sort of like, uh, you know, over the phone, uh, sort of like instructors and, and guides. Uh, and she found a sense of calm. And then she walked back in the room and, uh, um, and I, I was better. Now, now you've talked on this program about regression to the mean, you know, which mm-hmm. is when people tend to get better after they get, after they're, they're the worst. Uh, and it, it's easily explainable that way, but whatever it was, it was a very powerful story for me growing up. It was like, I would think about this a lot, like what this had been like for me as this little baby and the fact that I had been saved by God. And it was a very uh, potent sort of narrative that I had about myself, which, um, which actually leads to uh, the, the book I, was, I, I wrote because uh, it turns out that's a very powerful thing for, and you mentioned placebos in that same episode. Um, it's a very important part of the placebo effect is your narrative. Right. So so the placebo effect has been endlessly fascinating to me. I mean, we might as well go there. I mean, wh- what was your first what was your first experience with the first-hand experience with the placebo effect? Well, I um <laughs> one could argue my my childhood. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Let's but say without, without insulting 100,000 people. Um uh uh I think where it really hit me, and, and actually I, I, I met um, one of the leading scientists, researchers in, in the country on placebos, is a, is a former Christian scientist. We actually went to the same college, uh, Christian Science College. And, um, and that's how I sort of realized that, this was, that there was this connection between belief and, and what's called expectation and this healing. And so I really got into this thing. And, and I, one of the earlier reporting trips I did was to the NIH um, facilities in Bethesda, Maryland. Have you ever been there? I have not. It's like, it's like kind of a scary place. It's, like this, it's beautiful. It's amazing. It's like, you know, basically a miracle factory. The amazing research that they do there. Why, why is it scary? Well, it's like these big blocky, you know, uh, sort of industrial looking brick buildings with like smoke coming out of the tops it's of like, them. It's like you know? East, East Berlin circa 1970. Yeah. Or some really bad movie in which, you know, like, you know, going to like where the, where Dr. Frankenstein has his, his college, you know, like, I, but it's, it's actually an amazing place. And I, I went to this corn, tiny little lab, a uh, woman by the name of Luana uh, Coloca, and she's an Italian researcher. And she basically, um, uh, she basically um, uh, said, okay, well, I'm going to put you in a, in a placebo research trial. And, uh, <laughs> She and I didn't really know what I was getting into, but she 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 hooked up with these these these, uh, these electrodes to my hands, and she said, "Okay, you know, we're going to electrocute you." Uh, and uh, we ended up uh, so we kind of figured out where on my pain scale was a, I think it was a seven or a six, a pretty powerful shock that that like it was so powerful that I twitch, you know, really really not comfortable. And then they had another one that was like a one, you know, and it was basically a little pinch, and so. Every time I saw a green screen, I'd get the one. Every time I saw a red screen, I'd get the seven. And, uh, and she purposely sort of like would show me the red and then she'd like wait a beat. And then- um, Watch you flinch. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, because, and this is, turns out this is really important for the placebo because it's creating expectation. And I'd be like, oh my God, oh my God. I'm like, you know, and, oh, and you twitch, horrible, horrible. 
and she'd go back and forth, you know, zipping back and forth, and you know, and you, you just come to dread that red screen. And then uh, on the last run, it felt a little like the, the 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 number one had been like turned up like one. It was not like a two. If you look at the the score, I was keeping it. It's like I call it two. Um, and then the red is obviously you know, and I'm twitching. Uh, and then she walks in and she says, you know, that, that was a great job uh, on that last run. I gave you the the high one every time. Huh. Like, and it was just, you know, and I mean, it, it wasn't just that I felt or I was convincing myself that I had less pain or like I was like, like I had less pain. I was not twitching. Like I was not fooling myself. I'm not an idiot. You know, like it was less and I just blew my mind. So I mean, this, objectively, the stimulus was the same, but your nervous system responded according to your expectations. Exactly. My basically my brain filled in the gap. My, my, your brain has expectations and it doesn't want to be wrong. So when it's wrong, it just makes up the difference. And in this case, it released, um, it released, uh, a, a, basically a, a morphine drug that's already in my brain in the, in the, uh, in, into the brain. And, and it basically covered up the pain. So I basically got a shot of morphine, uh, so fast that you, you almost can't even measure it. It happens that quite, it has, happens faster than my brain can realize it's in more pain than it expected because your, your brain does not want to be wrong. You know, it, it, it does not want to be proven wrong. And that's, that just blew me away. Cause I kind of, in the back of our head, we all think the placebo effect at his heart is like people just gullible people who don't want to admit what really happened. But these are real biochemical reactions that happen and they are measurable. And I was hooked at that point. So then uh, what have been some of the other, of course, I'm a human guinea pig. I do all sorts of ill-advised things to myself, uh, trying to ensure I don't mortally wound myself. But what are some of the other experiments that you've done or experiences that you've had involving this personally? Now, there's one you mentioned that I don't have any context on, which was related to a curse of some type. Uh, (laughs) So immediately, this is of interest to me. I've spent a good amount of time in places (laughs) like Brazil and elsewhere where there's there's quite a bit of talk about this type of thing. So I would love to just hear the story since I don't know the first (laughs) thing about it. Well, I'll I'll answer the first question first, then we'll talk about curses. Uh, I mean, I spent a lot of time getting burned, um, poked, you know, prodded. I had almost I threw up once because nausea is also responsive to placebos. Um, uh, and so it's in a nausea experiment. Uh, you know, I've done a lot of these sort of things. But the thing that's really the, the most useful for placebo research is pain. And when it comes to placebos, uh, you know, it really affects things like, uh, you know, it, it, like Parkinson's, uh, um, like um, pain, depression, anxiety, irritable bowel syndrome, basically all these things are connected by dopamine and a few other chemicals that seem to really respond well to placebos. And that's why placebos are so interesting is because some things have these like 60, 70% responses and other things, you know, 10, 15%. So there's something going on there. And so because pain, you can't cause depression in a, in a, in a laboratory, though I might argue with the current presidential debate, you could you can cause depression like on command, but, uh, but you know, it's not something you can really play with, but pain you can. So I've spent a lot of time getting burned and, and poked and all kinds of things, because that's, that's what scientists studying the placebo effect study is pain. And, and there's actually a lot of implications for that. Um, 
And when you, uh, so an example of one of these things, um, and I'm, I'm getting to your question. Uh, your I'm, not in a, I'm not in a rush. <laughs> this is, this is not a, this is not a three minute, uh, morning TV show. We got time. <laughs> um, where was it? Oh yeah. Yeah. Getting, uh, so there's, um, so there's, there's a, there's a classic experiment where, um, where, uh, okay. So you're, a lot of these things are, uh, they're they're not conscious these placebo effects and you talk in your in your other, the other episode about how like oh now that i know that uh homeopathy isn't real or isn't it isn't isn't effective it doesn't work on me anymore well that's not true for everybody actually for a lot of people they can't help the fact that say homeopathy or a placebo works in fact you can tell someone this is a placebo pill it is not it is inert give it to them and they will still have a placebo response what's the explanation for that well, it's uh, a lot of it's classical conditioning. Um, you know, how many, how many times have you, have you ever like taken a Tylenol and been like, you know, like, Oh my God, my head hurts my head. Oh my God. I'm in so much pain. Take the Tylenol and be like, Oh God, thank you. You know? Oh, I can think. Has that ever happened to you? It happens to me. Sure. Yeah. Well, Tylenol doesn't kick in for like 20 minutes. Right. Right. So what are you, you know, what are you experiencing? Well, that's, that is, you know, and, and whether or not it's real or not, like that's basically classical conditioning. Like, like, you know, you can condition yourself to have the experience. And so you are getting drugs. They're just drugs that are already in your head. They're not, they're not, uh, they're not from the outside. And so for some people, it doesn't matter what you tell them. It's subconscious. Their brain's going to do it, whether you want them to or not. And, and one of the people who's studying this, she does this, she uses faces, but they're flat. They flash at you so quickly. You can't recognize them, but your brain does. And one of those faces is attached to more pain and the other one's attached to less pain. And so you see these faces and your brain goes more pain and then it responds. Your, your, your conscious brain can't tell the difference between these two faces, but your, your unconscious brain sees it, knows what's about to come. And this is again, it, in this case, it was burning pain, but it was pain. Uh, and so that, um, and that's what underlies a lot of this stuff. And, and that's some of the really exciting research going on right now is looking at the unconscious nature of placebo effects. And, and they may follow a totally different path. They may be kind of like Google maps where they, like they kind of overlap on, on a couple roads and then they diverge a lot. Like, but it's, it's a whole different thing and it's really beyond our, our reach. And, and one of the big questions that comes up is like, well, you know, are some people able to tap into this and other people not? Um, but so I mentioned that you have high pain, you have low pain, right? Well, the low pain is obviously a placebo effect, you know, but you're getting the same pain, the same stimulus, but your brain prepares you, you know, your brain changes it. So your experience is different. And so there's a low pain, which is like, oh, I don't feel any pain on this one because I saw a certain face. Um, and that's the placebo response. But there's also the high pain, right? The higher pain than actually you should be feeling. And your brain's like, oh, my God, this is going to be very, very painful. That's called the nocebo the response. nocebo, right. Exactly. And almost every study that looks at placebos, you also have a nocebo uh, you know, piece of that equation. But nocebos are actually really hard to study, and they're, they're really unethical to study in, in the – in the way that we'd want to, it's like you, you want to give someone a drug and be like, this is going to make you really, really sick, or this is going to kill you or something. Like, you, you can't do that. Um, it's, <laughs> IRB it's, doesn't like to prove that kind of stuff. Exactly. That, that, that has been tried and it has not worked out. Uh, so, you know, you talk to these scientists and, and some of them are like, oh, man, you know, I understand this is ethical, but man, I'd really like to know. <laughs> no, back, back in the good old day, it was like Cahill and those folks could, could uh, fast subjects for 40 days. <laughs> can't, exactly. even do, can't do that with my ice for yeah, i don't think you can even exceed like 72 hours now ah science yeah I, well that's, that's the thing and like 
there are these great stories that I'm never really able to verify about people, you know, with, with you know, being lied, told they were having cigarettes being put on their backs and uh, uh, all these terrible things they do to prison inmates, um, it, you know, to test in the SIBO, basically, you know, whatever this thing they didn't really have a name back then. Uh, but, um, yeah, I used to be able to do that kind of stuff. So nocebos are a little thin on researching. When I was writing this chapter, it, it was hard to fill it out. You know, like you've got so much, there's some really interesting stuff in there. Nocebos are definitely more powerful than placebos. If, if I, if I, you know, if I want to train you to have a placebo response, we got to do it a bunch of times so that you really get it down that, that this is less pain. If I want you to have a nocebo response, I just have to tell you, this is going to hurt. This is really going to hurt. Get ready. And, and your brain, your brain's just wired for fear. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's cool. But you know, I, I needed more. So I really started getting into these ideas about superstition and how you can like really, you know, cause bad things to happen in your life just through expectation, just through belief and real belief. I mean, you can't, you know, you can't half-ass these things. They really, you really have to, have to feel it. And, and before long I came to curses and I've read about these amazing things that have happened to, to people in, in Haiti. There's, there's, there's stories of people dying from being cursed. Uh, there's just in Haiti, obviously the, the zombie is, um, is a, is a, is a well-known phenomenon that isn't fully understood. There's only been three zombies that have really been documented and, and none of them are recent. Uh, and, uh, okay. I have to pause for a second. No, I saw, I think the serpent and the rainbow, which I, which was, uh, I thought was a great movie when I saw it. I haven't seen it in probably 15 years, but what characterizes a zombie in the clinical sense at this point? Um, well, unfortunately there haven't been any that have been recent and the most, there are actually a couple of them got written up in uh, the journal of science. Oh no, was it Royal Academy Sciences? It, there's, been, there's been some papers and, and mostly they're, they're debunked. Um, uh, but, uh, a zombie is someone who has, uh, clearly some kind of brain damage that causes them to shuffle and sort of lose contact with reality. And, um, and sort of become a, a very different sort of person the way we think of the, the classic zombie. They obviously don't eat brains, but, um, um, but these, this is a very, very old myth that's sort of really tied into the, the history of, of Haiti. Um, and no one's, it, you know, there've been a couple documented cases, but it's, you know, the thirties and, right. uh, you know, they we don't really have a lot of detail. So there's a couple of theories. One of them's in the serpent and the rainbow that talks about, uh, Sort of the, these these uh, this pufferfish venom that can cause uh, um, a uh, sort of a state of you know catatonic sort of state, um, and uh, the other idea is part of this thing. So you basically a zombie is created when you you know when you 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 give someone a magic potion, you put them underground, you bury them, and then you un unearth them and they're a zombie. And, and one of the theories is maybe that there's oxygen deprivation, but there's another sort of idea that maybe it's just the cumulative power of everyone's expectations on you. That right. This is who you are now that you do it to yourself. Sure. Um, or, I mean, speaking in tongues, same thing, maybe same idea, you know, the power, and this is some of the, the latest research, um, that's coming out and, and, uh, keep an eye out for the national geographic in, in December. I, I've got a story on this, uh, shows that like peer pressure can boost the placebo effect. Like, beyond anything that you can imagine this is a hugely large huge hugely important part of uh of the placebo effect and so the nocebo effect obviously you know it it could be in there too like other people's expectations can affect your body in a very real way so uh 
I get to this point and I'm like, you know, I really want to experience like, I, what is that? Can I, I don't believe in curses. You know, that was my problem is I don't, I don't believe in these things. I, I believe in the power of the mind. Um, but so how can you create, you know, that kind of belief? Like I wanted to have that kind of belief, right? Like, you know how it is. I'm sure you probably feeling the same thing right now. <laughs> I've, I've, I've always been dying to feel like I'm going to <laughs> die from curses. <laughs> well, one of the tricks I learned about, so I, I started getting into curses and I live here in Mexico. So I'm, I'm able to talk to what I call brujos or witch doctors. Uh, and one of the things I learned is you actually, you're, you can only curse someone. The only way to curse someone is you have to tell them they're cursed. You have to do the curse and then you have to tell them they're cursed. It's the only way it works. I found one woman who's like, no, you know, like I'm so powerful. I'll just kill them from a distance. But mostly they say, you know, you have to tell someone they're cursed. <laughs> you have to inform them, right? Right. And which is, which is such a, it's such a, it's such an, in my mind, this is a nocebo response. Like this is a very complicated socially enforced nocebo response. And, and I mean, just what you just said a couple of minutes ago, like, you know, oh, I've always wanted to get cursed. Like there is something, even if you don't believe in curses, there is something off putting about being cursed. And so I just wanted to know if, uh, if I cursed myself, if, if, if it would work, if I could psych myself out. And so, uh, and so I did. I hired a guy to curse me. Um, and <laughs> now, now, hold on just a second. So you have in Mexico, I would imagine, a fair number of uh, Brujo options available. How did you choose this particular uh, person to, to curse you? Uh, well, this, there's actually a market. <laughs> looked, at, looked at his Yelp reviews. Or... <laughs> I literally, it was even, it was even more than that. I actually talked to the uh, the witch doctor market PR people. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, so uh, there's actually a market like a like a like there's a lot of like local markets in Mexico, and there's one that focuses on brujeria or or, or witch doctors sort of uh, paraphernalia, and they got like those these weird little like burned dolls that have you know, evil powers they've got you know coyote skins he, i was assuming these things would all be like secret and hidden like like some back room somewhere where like the dark magic is not at all like this is like this is totally up front they're like look you want the dark farmers magic? Want the light. farmer's market of exactly of, of I guess it, dolls. Is, right. it is literally like that like it's like oh you want white magic go to this person you want black black magic go to this person and so it's it's all out in front and so i had to before i went in i had to actually you know, we're talking to people and they're like, oh, you have to talk to the PR department. And there's like this office in the back of the... Oh, oh you weren't kidding. I thought you were joking. <laughs> that's serious. There's this office in the back of the market and there's these two guys who sort of hang out there and they're like, oh, you know, and I was like, I'm here with National Geographic and doing this. And they were like, okay, well, you know, sign this paper and yeah, it's, yeah curses, they're very scary. And okay, there you go. And talk to this guy and this guy. They're, my, they're our favorites. And so we did a little, we did a little investigating and sort of found out who to talk to. And they were the same people that were recommended by the PR people. Uh, so uh, we talked to a couple different people. Uh, and uh, I sort of chose one of them was genuinely scary, I think, and genuinely really believed that she could kill people with her curses. Uh, and, you know, she was she was out there. And so like, I, I didn't actually go with her because uh, I was afraid it she'd find it insulting, you know, to, to have a curse put on myself. Mm. Um, and I went to the other guy who kind of got a, Oh, like a guinea pig. Okay. I, I guess, I guess I can do this. Like, you know, that terrible things can happen, but and I said, okay. And so, and he was a lot more sort of, he was also black magic and, 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 and knew lots of, uh, like evil powers, but, uh, but he was a little more, um, you know, willing to go with me on it. And mm. so I sort of chose him. 
And uh, I walked around for a week and a half with a curse over me. And then what? So, did that, <laughs> so, so A, did anything happen? And then B, did you have to get it uh, removed like stitches later by the same guy? Or what, what happens? <laughs> Well, for I mean, you know, I actually I decided I wasn't going to change anything. I just want to live my life normally, just do what I normally would do. Um, and so, you know, like I went out and, and drank half a bottle of scotch with a good friend of mine, and like walked home. And I was like, okay, I'm cursed. I have to be careful of cars and stuff like that. But you know, I, I was at that point, I wasn't really, you know, worried about curses. Uh, but the rest of the week went by, and I, I logged every bad thing that happened to me, and. Um, and not really much happened. And I, I started to get kind of cocky. And, uh, and, um, and I even went rock climbing. I, I, I'm a big rock climber. And I even went like rock climbing with some friends over the weekend. And, uh, you know, and I was leading. I was going first, which, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's not super dangerous. I've done it many times before. But, it's, you know, it's, a, it's not a safe thing to do. But, I, you know, I, and they're all making fun of me because I was, you know, cursed <laughs> and climbing. But, you know, I got, I, by the time I got to the end, I said, yeah, this has really been a, been a bust. You know, nothing's really happened. I mean, I'm kind of psyching myself out, but not really. Uh, and then I went back to get the curse removed, and the, the guy wasn't there. Uh, he was <laughs> gone fishing. <laughs> gone fishing, literally. He was like, "Oh yeah, like you know, they, they, they curse. Yeah, he's not. He's he's dealing with some family thing. Come back next week." So I had another like weekend, uh, and I'll never forget. It was in it was uh, it was June, uh, not this last year, but the year before. Uh, and uh, and I had another weekend, and I was basically be cursed for that weekend. I was like, ah, whatever. Like, nothing happened last weekend. Nothing's gonna happen this weekend. And on uh, Saturday night, um, my wife, who was pregnant at the time, started to feel some uh, some painful pangs in her stomach. And by the next morning, it had gotten pretty bad. And uh, and we talked to the doctor, and the doctors need to go to the hospital right now. Um, and they were worried that it was contractions that were starting. She was like. Ugh four months pregnant. So like, you know, the, the, this contraction is lethal at that point. And so we get in a cab and we're, we're going to the, we're going to the hospital. And, uh, uh, the only thing that's going through my head is the curse. Uh, and, uh, it's never occurred to her, but, uh, but I was just panicked that I had, uh, I had killed my child, uh, with a curse. And it's, what's interesting is how quickly your mind goes there. How quickly, and it's a, it's a logical fallacy that, that the Romans called a, a proctor hoc ergo hoc, which is uh, if this, then that. Yeah, after uh, this, therefore, yes. because of this. Just right, exactly. The, That's the, the, the correlation versus causation. Exactly. And it, it usually comes up in the, for, in the, in the, in the case of uh, something happening, and then you can go backwards in time and find a cause for it. And this is this is the this is the the home of the curse. This is the think of the Kennedy curse, right? Like a bunch of Kennedys die in very tragic and strange ways, and you can go back and you, people have looked for causes. You know, they, going back to Ireland and one of his ancestors stepping on a a fairy house, um, and uh, you know, because once you have the the result, then you can go back and find the cause. And, and causes seem to be real at that point. And it's exactly what I'm a man of science. I believe in, in, in logic. And, and, but my brain went there so fast when, when the shit hit the fan. Like I was, I was suddenly uh, convinced that I, this was going to happen. And I, had, I would never forgive myself. Uh, if, if, you know, and, and it would always be in the back of my mind that, that, that I had done this. Um, it turned out. Uh, so we went with the hospital. and. Uh, uh, there was an excruciating couple minutes where they couldn't find a heartbeat. And, uh, yeah. 
And then they did. And it turned out the baby was fine. Uh, it was some bad tacos uh, from the day before, a good friend of mine's going away party. And um, uh, and she was okay. And I uh, I learned that day that, that my baby, they went up and did the sonogram and learned my baby was a boy. And, you know, I was sitting in the, in the room, like laughing with these, these, these texts, you know, the medical texts. And, uh, and I just, I just realized, you know, what a wonderful day it had become. It was actually uh, father's day. It, that Sunday was the, my first father's day. And, uh, uh, and I just, I realized that, you know, this thing that was a curse, had suddenly become a blessing. And it's such a construct of, of what you see, you know, and, and that these things only have power when you give them power and it happens fast. So, so I have a, uh, so, so follow up to that. Did you go back to the absent witch doctor and get it removed? Ever? I did. I did. I did. I'm, you know, I, I'm a man of science, but I, uh, I, <laughs> how could it just, hurt? How could it hurt? <laughs> how could it hurt? And I followed his instructions. He had me burn a candle, uh, and, uh, do some other, blew some smoke on me and, uh, the curse is lifted. And <laughs> did um, you tell him what happened? Was he like, yeah, I don't want to kill your kid, but I wanted you to just shoot a, a warning shot to let you know this stuff. <laughs> I didn't actually, I didn't tell him. I thought it might weird him out if he thought that he made, because I, I see this as being like this, this is proper hawk, ergo hawk. This is, this is me looking for a cause for something that happened. Sure. Um, but he wouldn't have seen it that way. And I think he would have, I, I was afraid that he might feel weird yeah. about having, about having caused you know something like that so uh, i didn't i just said that some some bad things happened some interesting it was very potent i, I my my electric rate uh, my electric um uh, uh, uh toothbrush stopped working that week and so was, <laughs> <laughs> it was a it was a not it was a uh, a practice curse <laughs> exactly. uh so, so a few questions about placebo right there are a couple things that come to mind that i've always been curious about number one is uh, well, actually, I'll get to the, the evolutionary question, but the, the first is you look at the nocebo effect, uh, mm-hmm. which I assume in most cases is an inert subject, uh, substance in the case of, say, ingestibles mm-hmm. or some relatively plain vanilla inactive control of some type, but it's going to make you nauseous, it's going to hurt you, it's going to burn you, whatever it might be. In the case of placebo, we have the same thing, right? We might have sugar pills, we might have some type of relatively inert substance. Uh, in the case, again, of ingestibles. Are there examples or is there evidence to suggest that if you have negative expectations, even if you consume a tried and true clinically tested drug, for instance, that does work, that you can negate the effects of that medicine if you expect to die, if you expect to get worse? I mean, is there any evidence to suggest that you can interfere with something that has already been statistically proven to work with negative if you if you have negative expectations absolutely yeah and that's and that's actually a misconception about placebos um they yes the easiest way to measure them is with an inert substance but they exist with everything like i mentioned the tylenol uh like you know that you can have placebos on top of active uh drugs and and it's really a great question like how do you compare the placebo effect for an inert drug versus the placebo effect for an active drug? Cause there is one on top of there. Um, and there are placebo effects too. And so, uh, and this is the thing, this is sort of the thing that I keep, you know, trying to drive home is like, you know, a lot of this is tied to bedside manner and how doctors interact with you. And, um, you know, it, it can be as high as 30%. So like a doctor, if he's, if he's going to be a jerk to you, like he's, 
he's throwing away 30% of his cure on top of what he's giving you, you yeah. know, and, and, and that, that's a really rough approximation that those numbers aren't really worked out yet. But that, I mean, they're, they're a substantial boost that you can get. Um, and you can also, you can erode the effectiveness of a, of a drug. Um, it's been played with, uh, actually in, one of the earliest placebo experiments was with uh, uh, dental patients, and they would uh, they would tell them they were uh, they were getting uh, they were either getting uh, painkillers or they were getting, <laughs> you know, and they weren't. Yeah. They tell them they're getting. They also told them they were getting something that would make them worse, and uh, and they did. <laughs> I'm injecting <laughs> something to make this root canal worse. Right, they're gonna Enjoy. make this thing, <laughs> make this thing worse, uh, and I think I think they're all recovering. Uh, dental patients, but uh, but the it, dentistry actually played a big role in early placebos. So uh, yeah, there's no question that you can erode uh, that you can erode uh, an active treatment with expectation. And there's there's even a bigger question that pain scientists are really struggling to understand right now, which is um, does your brain get into certain habits? Do you do you do you create these pathways? Think of them as like ruts in the road where you know you can't get your car out of the rut. Uh, you know, thinking about pain and, and are there types of pain that are strictly neurological that feel like you have pain in your knee, but it's actually in your head. And, uh, and these are, these may contribute to a huge portion of the chronic pain in our country. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, this is something I've explored also for myself. I had, uh, had chronic back pain for a very long time and there were some stru structural corrections with, um, specifically gymnastic strength training with this guy mm -hmm. named coach, coach summer, which helped a lot. But it was, I also read a book, which I'm blanking on the first name of the author, but I believe it's Sarno, S-A-R-N-O. And about a half dozen of my close friends who had suffered from chronic back pain credited this book with fixing their back pain. And it effectively focuses exclusively on expectations and the mind. Uh, and I had about a week of relief after reading that book. Really? So go figure. <laughs> uh, of course, end of one. And, uh, you know, of course. If, if we're if we're going along the lines of you know, Richard Feynman, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. So a lot of science is trying to prevent experimenters from fooling themselves. But uh, the, the question that I want to ask, in a case like that, where it appears to have, at least ultimately, it had a structural component, right? There, there was an orthopedic issue that I later fixed, but as an intervention, the you know, placebo or mental training component seem to help. Um, this is going somewhere. You mentioned Parkinson's earlier mm -hmm. and that Parkinson's seems to uh, respond well to placebo. And I'm sure it's mm -hmm. not across all patients, but at least a meaningful percentage. And I've read that Alzheimer's on the flip side does not. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's accurate, but let's... That is okay, so, so if that's accurate, what is the plausible explanation or mechanism by which one improves and the other does not. And of course, the experimental designs, I'm sure, are different. But uh, I have both Parkinson's and Alzheimer's on both sides of my family. So this is a very personal question for me, right? And there's there. I was speaking with someone who's also been on the podcast, Peter Atia, recently, and he, we were talking about Alzheimer's disease. And he's like, well, you know, once something is really denatured, yes. once the egg turns white, I'm not sure you can reverse it, but so it's, it may be a preventative game, but how does Parkinson's differ? Is it because it's mediated by neurotransmitters and you can somehow rig that game with an expectation? Long question, I know, but how would you, how do you think about the difference 
between efficacy of placebo effect in Paul in uh, Parkinson's versus Alzheimer's? It's a great question. It's a really great question. Um, <clears throat> yeah, there is um, there is one one answer, one word answer, and that's dopamine. Uh, d- you know, uh, Parkinson's is for those who don't know, it's it's a it's a it's a deficiency um, and and usually caused by um, it usually goes down to substantia nigra in your brain. It's a part that that produces this dopamine and, and monitors these systems uh, that. Um, that uh, it's it's a deficiency in this in this in this chemical. Now this this chemical not only uh, does it, um, it it affects your movement, which is why Parkinson's patients tend to shake, um, it, but it also affects um, reward systems. Uh, it's very much in tune with rewards. So you get jolted dopamine. You know when someone says, "Hey, you just want a million dollars," you get jolted dopamine. Uh, it, it tends to feel good, and the, the down the downstream um, the things that it, it triggers also make you feel good. It, it, it's it's all around a positive. Uh, uh, um, chemical that uh, that is related to reward. So, what is placebo if not reward? An expectation is an expectation of reward. So, basically, it just so happens that Parkinson's is 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 um, mediated by a chemical that happens to be really important in placebos. And that that's the only answer that I can give you right now is that. Uh, it, it just so happens to be the right chemical that ha- it affects your movement, but it also has this other role. And because of that, and that happens with a lot of these different chemicals like uh, CCK, which is um, uh, a chemical that, that affects the nocebo response, and it also affects your stomach. And so, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, it may be one of the reasons why irritable bowel syndrome responds so well to placebos. But <clears throat> that's, and that, um, that simple fact is, is, it plays a huge role. And dopamine is one of these big Big chemicals in your brain. It, it has its it has its fingers and everything. So uh, and and there is not a a mechanism like that in Alzheimer's that that leads that lends itself to a placebo effect. It's not to say that placebo doesn't exist in Alzheimer's, but it's much easier to explain with like statistical explanations like your your regression in the mean. Um, and it it also may damage the fundamental parts of your brain uh that that you need in order to have right, to exert placebo. the the results or to to exert the placebo effect upon oneself that same argument has been made for autism it's it definitely not settled um i have lately seen some some really interesting studies in autism and placebos and i know a couple of the top scientists are, are turning their attention to it right now and but people have often said that for years that that autism is the same way um but uh, there is a degenerative uh, element to Parkinson's that 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 sure. is not it's not like you know auto, uh, Alzheimer's, but it, it's there is a degenerative. But what's amazing is the placebo effect can almost I've seen it almost reverse that. I mean, it's amazing, That's and it's wild. you got to wonder where that dopamine's coming from. But I have seen people uh, in in the book and and also in the in the story coming out in December. I talk about a gentleman who uh, was really struggling ten years. And today, I think he just climbed Half Dome this year. So with Parkinson's, with Parkinson's. Now, uh, so so this this I guess begs the question, and there may not be I don't expect a miracle answer to this, but placebo effect most people would think of as being tricked or tricking oneself, right? Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to proactively use the placebo effect, and you have a parent or a grandparent with Parkinson's, and you wanted to help them or they wanted to help themselves, what do you do? 
Well, um, first of all, I, I think it's very important, Feynman and all these other folks who say, you know, you can't deceive yourself as a scientist is very important. As a patient, throw it out the window, man. Like, yeah, right, you know, right. deceive away. Uh, you, you obviously want to be careful. I mean, that's a, that's, that's sort of the, 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 the $64,000 question, right? Like, this is what everyone wants to know. It's like, how can I use this? And, and the answer that I've come up with from a lifetime in Christian science, a childhood in Christian science and a year studying this is we already do. There's a lot of options out there for studying, for using placebos. And, and it's different for everyone. Some people, you know, it's a, some product you buy. It's, you know, it's a, you know, it could be, it's interesting. If you look at placebos across different cultures, um, <laughs> in France, um, suppository placebos work better than normal placebos. Uh, <laughs> ask me why. You just let you draw your own conclusions. In uh, in Britain, uh, it, you know, foul tasting ones work better. Uh, and in 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 Parkinson's patients, actually, I, I've I've seen studies that uh, that show that if you take a pill, um, it's uh, let's see, I think you get about maybe you know, average of fifteen percent more movement, more, more um, mobility. And uh, if you get a surgery, a fake surgery, it's like twenty five. The right. sham surgery research is so fascinating. Yes. I mean, just for yeah. people listening who have never looked at this stuff, do some Googling around sham surgeries, sham surgery experiments, and you find people who have, I mean, legitimate structural fuck-ups in their knees who get fake surgeries where they get opened up and they're mm -hmm. under general anesthesia, so they're knocked out. And then they wake up, it's sutured together, and they're like, yeah, doc, my knee feels so much better even months later. It's fascinating. What's what's hilarious about those, and, and that these are very common in, in placebo. And I'm sorry, in in, in Parkinson's research. Uh, and if I, what Parkinson's researcher told me that uh, the greatest uh, the greatest um, uh, um, breakthrough in Parkinson's research has been the sham surgery. Uh, but they, you know, when you do these surgeries, like the doctors, you know, they don't know they're doing the real one or the or the, the sham until until the moment of, and they have to. Um, you know, they get the card and it says, you know, this is a real one. And then uh, they have to actually sit and wait for the entire surgery to be over for, for a SAM surgery because you can't walk out of the room early, you know, and have the patient's family out there watching you come out after five minutes, right. you know, to go to go play, you know, Candy Crush or something like that. Like you have to, <laughs> you have to sit in there and, then, you know, easiest surgery ever. Huge success, right? guys. Go get a sandwich. It's going to be a while before he wakes up. <laughs> Exactly. You can't do that. So like, you, you know, they, they, and they've thought these things through because, uh, in, in today's connected age, you know, these patients find each other and they compare, they compare stories and they can unblind a study. If you figure out that your, your doctor walked out of your, your surgery five minutes after it started. So, uh, it's really tricky. And, um, and, uh, I've sat in on, on, on some of these, these kinds of surgeries and, and, uh, and it is in Parkinson's, it is, it is stunning what, what can happen with, uh, um, with these things. So, so yeah, I, I was saying, uh, across different people, like there's different things that resonate with different people. Maybe it's like, you know, space age technology, maybe it's ancient mysticism. There's lots of different ways that you can get in touch with your expectations. But the, the thing is, is this is not hope. This is belief. This, and this is the thing in Christian science that I, I remember growing up is that you, people don't say God will heal me. People say God already healed me. I just can't see it yet. Um, Which and are that's two a, very different things, right? I mean, very different things. Expectation is triggered by certainty, you know, by a certain level of certainty. Now, it, it's a great question as to like whether it's the same for everybody, whether certain people are just talented with their with their own expectation. But there's, you know, you really have to believe. And 
It's How do you manufacture that though? If, for instance, and I'm not saying because we're—I I think we all overestimate how logical we are in all aspects of our lives, or many of us do. But if if you've tried to train yourself to be hyper rational, how do you do that? Do you just need to become so desperate that you want something to work? So your condition has to be kind of reach a point of uh, of, of being particularly bad, or is there another? Is there another approach? Because I know a lot of scientists, and if I were to try to say, hey, like you have this condition, you can't seem to figure it out, you should go try acupuncture. And they'd be like, eh, right. looked at the data, not compelling, right? Right. Uh, um, this is, if you, if you want to like really make a doctor or scientist uncomfortable, ask him this question. <laughs> and then, you yeah. know, especially someone who studies this. Um, no, it doesn't. I mean, desperation, the problem with desperation is it, it, I, I, and in my book, I lay out like you know three rules um, of ways not to hurt yourself, and 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 one of, and these these can be dangerous. These, these are life threatening, you know, f- these are life threatening issues, and and we all know stories about people who have relied on on placebo treatments that have then died from say cancer. Um, so desperation is not a is not a great word when I think about these things. It can be fun though. We, it can be sort of an exploration and, and sort of looking into your own mind, things that might be plausible. And one of my rules, I, you know, I say, uh, don't, you know, don't, don't die or don't hurt yourself. And, and the second one is don't go broke. You know, like you have to be careful that like, you know, in order to create expectation, you shouldn't need to spend $2,000 a month, yeah. you know, on something. And, and so there, there's, there's this, it's a very tricky. And don't uh, hurt the planet. Right. Or don't. And that's, that's the third one. <laughs> and, and, and I know I, I read a little snippet about this, which is like, don't use endangered animals. And people might be like, what? Endangered animals? It's like, yeah, don't go to Chinatown and buy uh, like black bear gallbladder extract mm-hmm. because that's why there are these horrifying, I've seen video of this, you know, farms in China that look like concentration camps where they have bears and tigers, their entire facilities with like mm-hmm. dozens of tigers hooked up to basically... Uh, these uh, sort of extraction machines it's it's really terrible it's it's not worth it you know there are other ways or shark fin soup all that bullshit uh, yeah, the shark part is like actually is more chondroitin for for shark for sharks but it's yeah. uh, but all of these things um uh they uh um there are other there are other ways to engage your expectation there are other ways to create a placebo response um and and you know some of these placebo responses some of these, there there is growing evidence and i I'm having a hard time believing it's not true that that some of these things can become permanent. You can, and you've talked a lot about rewiring your brain. Some of the, you know, relief can, you know, that comes from belief can be permanent. I've certainly seen it as a Christian scientist growing up. Um, and and the trick is sort of finding the thing that that does it for you and and doesn't cause damage to you or others. You know, and, and there are lots of options. Like you want to drink your own urine, like go for it. Like, you know, there's lots of different ways that, you, you know, whatever resonates for you. Um, these things, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a delicate game and maybe you have to experiment with a lot of things. And there's some people out there who simply, it won't work. And that's, yeah. I think, and there's some really great, in, interesting research going on again with dopamine into, um, into genetics and the genetics of placebo. Mm. And, uh, and there are some people who it seems just don't respond and, and they're Almost just like, going to be out like- of luck. Like hypnosis, right? I mean, very much related, probably. Very much. It's not as stable. Hypnosis tends to be stable over time, uh, and and placebo tends to change from day to day. But um, because your opinions change, all these things change. Uh, but um, uh, it does look like there are some people that if you exclude them 
and it doesn't really work on a yet on an individual basis, but if you take a thousand people and you look at their genetics, you can you can take out the three hundred who are most likely to respond, and 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 it looks like like we might be onto something. Do there. you know uh, offhand what the markers are or what the SNPs are? Yes, the, the the most the most effective one so far, and, and there's about thirty that have been found. But uh, the most effective, and, the, and, and um, there's another. I'm writing a piece on this right now. Is is Compt? It's, uh, oh, yeah. it's yeah. It's the the it's, it's poorly titled Warrior Warrior Gene, um, but it's uh, it's it's involved with a uh, with an enzyme. That eats dopamine. So if you have a very active enzyme, you have a lot less dopamine. You've got a lot more efficient system that takes away all your dopamine. And then if you have a lazy one, uh, you got a lot of extra dopamine laying around. And those people tend to respond to placebos at a higher rate. People who have more dopamine laying around. Extra dopamine laying around. They also there's also some personality. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with this. There's some generalizable personality differences between people who are they're called met mets versus the val vals this is a classic mendelian sort of breakdown of like you know you've got the met mets the val vals and the val mets and there's 50 percent 25 percent 25 percent you can imagine a little box a little the old peapod thing anyway i'm getting off I'm no getting no off. i love it i love it <laughs> but like which 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 one of those responds best to placebos uh the met mets cool. the met mets it looks like there's some research out of harvard and it's been it's been it's been backed up in some some ways that have been published and some that haven't been published. Um, that it's super new, but it's it's really exciting and and it's it's. Uh, I personally am a met val. I'm a I'm a I'm a mix. So I'm the least interesting of the three because I'm somewhere in the middle and I've got some lazy ones. Well, I thank some, God you could have died from your curse. I, I know, right? <laughs> met, maybe I wouldn't be here. Uh, I don't. Have you done? Have you? Have you done? I'm sure you've done 23andMe, right, Tim? Yeah, I've had my I've had my full genome sequence, but I I don't know if I'm a met met val val or met val. I do not know that piece. It's it's a great. I mean, it's a great. And there's a few others. Uh, I basically am. I think the scientist who I talked to called me a. a um, uh, let's see. I think I was sort of a, a mix, uh, like we're all across the board. Like I didn't have anything that was, um, that except for one, I have the, the coding on the, uh, on the receptor for, um, for opioids in my brain is, is a little hungrier. It, 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 Ooh, it attaches. So, better. so no, no recreational heroin for you then. Yeah, it is. You're right. It's, it's related to addiction. <laughs> so you do have to be careful with that one. So, and that, that all people who are, you know, in, see, this is what's interesting about this is like these different chemicals in your brain related to placebos start working with or against each other, right? Because mm-hmm. it's just, now you got a big mix and they're all, you know, making noise. And so that's one of the reasons why this is probably so hard to figure out because it's not one thing. What other conditions that people might recognize, like IBS, you mentioned related to, I think, CCK, uh, pain, Parkinson's, what other conditions res- seem to respond well to placebo based on the data? Depression, anxiety, nausea, um, and uh, obviously addiction is one that that seems to be in this game. A lot of these things are related to dopamine or, or opioids, in, internal opioids, um, like endorphins. And there's a, there's um, you know something like uh, and there's a couple, and I've, I've struggled to find really good examples of especially low um, responders. But OCD seems to be a pretty low responder to. Uh, to, and you also mentioned Alzheimer's and be low responders to placebos. What uh, if, if somebody wanted to make a placebo pill as effective as possible? Uh, so I've read bigger pills versus smaller. Anything else? Mm-hmm. Colors, 
Any other uh, form factor? Anything that comes to mind? I mean, are you French? <laughs> <laughs> as much as I love suppositories, I don't know. Maybe that <laughs> reflects some some French blood. I'd have to look into it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's no question that the easiest, the best placebo would be an active placebo, and that's I make the argument in my book that, that that's what a, that's what acupuncture is. An active placebo is a placebo that is inert but causes something to happen in your body. The most the easiest one is 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 tingling. Um, and like, like niacin, which is why so many bunk supplements include niacin or something called beta alanine, because it causes oh, this skin yeah. flushing, and people are like, something's happening, and that of oh, course, that. oh yeah, yeah, it's very common practice. Oh, that's great. Uh, no, I, I have to look that up. I, I'm, uh, I've turned off all my computers for this interview, but I'm going to remember that. Uh, but yeah, that's exactly what, and, and there's actually a lot of, if you really want to get into it, there's actually a lot of debate around it. There is no true placebo because uh, they used to be sugar pills and and sometimes they use, you know, a sort of type of like basic corn or, um, you know, it's not clear what a rice, it's not clear if, if you're allergic to something like, <laughs> like rice, you know, you, like that's not a placebo, it's going to affect you. So there is no like real true placebo. So it's really hard to create a true active placebo, something that's completely inert except for one effect, like your fingers tingling. But in, in as much as we can do that, we have created some, some interesting placebos that, that make your fingers tingle and you're like, oh my God, something's happening. And then whatever expectation you have gets boosted. And that's a very, that's a very potent way to enhance a placebo effect. It's why uh, pharmaceutical companies don't use active placebos <laughs> because if they did, they'd never be able to they'd never be able to clear any drugs to the FDA. Yeah, well, they, well, they might not get the uh, results they want either. Uh, exactly. <laughs> there's a, uh, yeah, there's, there's some, that, that's for a separate episode, yes. maybe, but there's some <laughs> really interesting approaches that companies take to ensure they get the results they want. <laughs> right, exactly. It's like, and, what, what if you run 10 studies and you fund them all and then you only submit two? Well, right. <laughs> <laughs> that, could be, that could be interesting. Uh, that, <laughs> I, I know we don't have a ton of time left, but I wanted to mention a couple of things. The first is uh, I was spending some time with a friend of mine who's a former surgeon, MD, brilliant guy, and he was talking about how he as an end of one tried to use placebo control, mm -hmm. uh, which is very interesting. So he would, uh, and of course he could have sort of experimenter blinded this with having, say, his wife do this for him, uh, which he did in a few cases, but he would put these pills uh, whether they were or capsules, whatever they might be, um, and he would encapsulate placebos, right? So he would actually put something relatively inert, like a sugar or fill in the blank rice flour or whatever, into these capsules and wrap them in tinfoil and then number them. And uh, he would keep track, or his his uh, his wife would keep track of which were placebo and which were active, and then look at the results over time. Uh, it's a lot of work, uh, especially if you're going to really try to make it uh, defensible. Uh, but I, I guess what I'm wondering is, how have you used all the all the things you've learned and been exposed to? How how do you currently use that uh, in your life, or, or how do you plan to? Well, let me let me just say, if there's anyone listening who has access to placebo pills. Uh, especially different colors and different shapes. Give me a call because I would love. It. They're actually hard to get a hold of. Most most uh, most uh, research institutions sort of have their own little recipe, and uh, 
and you can buy them online, but I, I can't really tell what's in those. And, and I, I, you know, so, uh, so I would love to, and one of my plans for this book was to, was to be taking tons of placebo pills. And, uh, uh, <laughs> I haven't been able to do that. So your, your friend is amazing. And I, I'd love to hear what he came up with. Um, so that's, uh, one, one of them I'll, I'll tell you is yeah. that he actually got Pez and, uh, cut them into the shape uh, same color of the tablets he was taking. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, I mean, that, that's also. I mean, you have to kind of be like a like a like a necklace craftsman to make that work. <laughs> but right, right. And, and and once you spend that much time looking at this thing, are you really not going to recognize it? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But and also, Pez is not a, a true placebo because sugar is is you know it's a stimulant a little yeah. bit, and and so. Uh, it could also be sort of an active placebo of its own sort. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, um, that's a, I would love, uh, to do that. And I'd love to have someone like give me the, the hookup for like, like you said, colors and size and shapes have a big, big role to play in, Are, in function. Which, which colors have you seen in, uh, experiments function better than others? Do any Yellow. Yellow works well for, for depression. That's been, that's been pretty well established. Um, uh, larger tends to work well, better than smaller up to a certain size and then just gets uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> <laughs> then you have to just use it as a suppository. <laughs> At that point you might as well. Uh, so, uh, and, uh, there've been a few other ones that I've seen, um, like, uh, usually based around marketing. Um, so like, you know, something that looks like Advil, uh, and that's uh, hard to, Tell. I think or di- I, I, diamond shaped and blue, something like that. I read, yeah, <laughs> that's Viagra. Yeah, exactly, that's right. Yeah, that one. Oh, there's. I have a whole bit on my book about Viagra. I'm going to be starting on Viagra, uh, but like uh, uh, the other one is uh, gel caps versus uh, versus um, uh, this normal sort of white pills, and and uh, I've seen sort of very small studies sort of mixed on that one, but it's very personal. It's a very personal experience. It's hard to lump groups of people into you know into what they like um but and that's part of the fun fun or whatever uh of um of this process uh for me i am much more comfortable with the idea that we are suggestible this is real this is this is who we are this is and this is across i mean part of this project i went to china i mean my photographer went to to the the jungles of, of peru and the highlands of peru and you know we went we went followed pilgrims uh in europe uh and, uh, and you know, this is who we are. This, this is, it, you almost don't have to try. Like we do this. Well, that was, and that, and that was going to be my evolutionary point. Like maybe it's a vestigial dead end, uh, of some type, but otherwise, I mean, there is a, there's a, there's a role at this place. I mean, this is a, this is something across cultures that we've evolved to retain for some reason. No question. No question. Uh, and we're not alone. I mean, you know, animals, you can get placebo responses in animals. You can, you can even have immune placebo responses. You can program in rats. You can train them to have immune responses. Uh, basically, the, the same kind of response you'd have uh, if you're getting a, a, an organ donated to you and you needed to cut your, your, your immune response down. You, you can do that through expectation in rats. Hmm. I don't think it's been done in humans. It's probably going to be, once again, some some uh, ethical issues there <laughs> with doing that one, but, but you, uh, you, um, so this is, this is fundamental to who we are. And there's a great evolutionary reason why this might be. One can easily imagine that having, um, if you imagine sort of a group of people, you know, fending for themselves, having some members of that group 
being able to be, you know, very clear eyed, very matter of fact, not influenced by, uh, by suggestion at all might have, you know, some benefits for the group and then having other people who are more suggestible, but able to go out after an injury, you know, and after sort of healing themselves, their own expectation, but blowing smoke in their face and then feeling better, um, and being more, uh, um, more res- responsive to healing could definitely have uh, also a benefit for that community, that community being a, you know, a genetic population. And there being a good reason to have both of those elements in different degrees in a community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, evolution is all about you know, diversity, genetic diversity. And, and it, it makes a lot of sense to me why we would be programmed this way. And if you're going to choose one, you want to be the second one. You want to be able to to heal yourself if you can. Like that's what I, that's the thing I take away from this is like, I think going in, I think I would have preferred to be the first one, but coming out of this research, man, the second one has a lot of options available to them. They got a lot of different ways that they can um, harness their own healing. I mean, chronic pain sucks. And if you have extra tools to deal with chronic pain, use them, man. You, you know, and I, I think that's, uh, that's a, it's a valuable thing to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's such a fascinating topic, and we could talk for hours about your your adventures in Mexican fishing villages and uh, great with great white <laughs> sharks, and uh, that'll have to be another time. Uh, yeah. But uh, Eric, where can people find more about, of course, the book Suggestible You? Uh, more about you? Where can they say hello on uh, the web or social or anywhere else? Sure. Um, so. Uh suggestibleu.com is the the book's website and you can you can read about uh, upcoming events i'm going to be traveling in in uh in november and then again in january i'll be in the bay area and uh new york boston uh, you know and if, if anyone has any uh events that they'd you know like to hear more about this kind of stuff i'm, I'm happy to travel i love sharing this stuff this stuff is so much fun um you can also check out my old my other work at ericvance.com uh and there's like you said uh, you know I've spent some time in you know ancient mayan temples i've i've, I've chased sharks i've i've had a, a weird couple of years uh and um and then if you want to say hi to me i'm i'm on twitter uh at uh, at eric vance uh, eric, it's with a k eric with a k yeah eric with a k and uh, for everybody listening, of course, in the show notes, I will link to everything as always. So we will have links to everything that Eric just mentioned, as well as any resources that might have come up in the conversation. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been a blast. Thanks for having me, Tim. And uh, to everybody listening, uh, as always, and until next time, thank you for taking the time to tune in to The Tim Ferriss Show. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check 
check it out, just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by 99designs. When your business needs a logo, website, business card, thumbnail, or any other design, I recommend checking out 99designs. I use them myself. I've used them for many years. I use them to create book cover prototypes for the four hour body, which went on to become a number one New York Times bestseller. I've also used them for banner ads, illustrations, and much more. With 99designs, you get a variety of original designs from designers around the world, give your feedback, and then pick your favorite. Your happiness is guaranteed. So check out some of my competitions and designs and some of your competitions and designs from fellow Tim Ferriss Show listeners at 99designs.com forward slash Tim. And right now, you can get a free $99 upgrade on your first design. So check it out, 99designs.com forward slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by Wealthfront, and this is a very unique sponsor. Wealthfront is a massively disruptive, in a good way, set it and forget it investing service led by technologists from places like Apple and world famous investors. It has exploded in popularity in the last two years, and they now have more than two and a half billion dollars under management. In fact, some of my very good friends, investors in Silicon Valley, have millions of their own money in Wealthfront. So the question is why? Why is it so popular? Why is it unique? Because you can get services previously reserved for the ultra wealthy, but only pay pennies on the dollar for them. And this is because they use smarter software instead of retail locations, bloated sales teams, etc. And I'll come back to that in a second. I suggest you check out wealthfront.com forward slash Tim. Take the risk assessment quiz, which only takes two to five minutes, and they'll show you for free exactly the portfolio they'd put you in. And if you just want to take their advice, run with it, do it yourself, you can do that. Or, as I would, you can set it and forget it. And here's why. The value of Wealthfront is in the automation of habits and strategies that investors should be using on a regular basis, but normally aren't. Great investing is a marathon, not a sprint, and little things that you may or may not be familiar with, like automatic tax loss harvesting, rebalancing your portfolio across more than 10 asset classes, and dividend reinvestment add up to very large amounts of money over longer periods of time. Wealthfront, as I mentioned, since it's using software instead of retail locations, etc., can offer all of this at low costs that were previously completely impossible. Right off the bat, you never pay commissions or account fees. For everything, they charge 0.25% per year on assets above the first 15,000, which is managed for free if you use my link, wealthfront.com forward slash Tim. That is less than $5 a month to invest a $30,000 account, for instance. Now, normally when I have a sponsor on this show, it's because I use them and recommend them. In this case, it's a little different. I don't use Wealthfront yet because I'm not allowed to. Here's the deal. They wanted to sponsor this podcast, but because of SEC regulations, companies that invest your money are not allowed to use client testimonials. So I couldn't be a user and have them on the podcast. But I've been so impressed by Wealthfront that I've invested a significant amount of my own money, at least for me, uh, in the team and the company itself. So I am an investor and hope to soon use it as a client. Now back to the recommendation. As a Tim Ferriss Show listener, you'll get $15,000 managed for free if you decide to open an account, but just start with seeing the portfolio that they would suggest for you. Take two minutes, fill out their questionnaire at wealthfront.com forward slash Tim. It's fast. It's free. There's no downside that I can think of. 